Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. Our topic today is UASs, that is, unmanned aerial systems, which are better known as drones. Drones come in all shapes and sizes, from small toys that you can literally buy at toy stores, to vehicles the size of small airplanes that are probably best known for their military and defense applications. But today, we'll be focusing our attention on the drones in the middle, mid-sized drones that are used in research and commercial applications. I'm joined by Justin Bradley. Justin Bradley is an associate professor in the School of Computing at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. As a professor here at the university and co-director of the Nimbus Lab, Justin helps to develop new drone technologies. In our discussion, we'll talk about what drones are, including what they are and what they are not capable of doing today, and Justin and his colleagues' efforts to teach this new technology even newer tricks, from operating autonomously in swarms, to interacting with the physical environment to assist in tasks such as soil monitoring and research in remote locations. You've been working on drones for 17 years, and you're a pilot. I think most people nowadays have some sense of what drones are, going from the small things that we get or give as holiday presents. We're in the holiday season, so cheap $25, $50 things that are never going to be safely flown, which is fine. There's small and harmless, hopefully, to massive things that are basically small aircraft that are used for everything from reconnaissance to military operations, but they're aircraft. So 17 years ago, what were drones like 17 years ago? Yeah, that's a great question. So in 2005, I started a master's degree at Brigham Young University, and I was in the MAGIC lab, as it is acronymed. And uh, it had been around a few years, and they flew small, what we called Zaggy-style fixed-wing aircraft. So this is before the age of multi-copter drones type. They were small, fixed-wing, sort of delta-wing-style uh, push-prop on them. And so the, these were like small airplanes? Yeah, a real small airplane. We're talking three to four feet mm-hmm. wingspan, so pretty small, lightweight. And the Magic Lab developed an autopilot for them, which they eventually commercialized. So, you know, we would go out and throw these in the air and run our control and autonomy algorithms and just kind of around town. And they just kind of buzzed around. We're small, little foamy style, not going to hurt anything. That's how we kind of, at least at BYU, started this drone research area. What powered them? So primarily, these were just electric. So this was sort of the onset of electric motors in that space. In the remote-controlled sort of RC helicopter and RC airplane space, these were still fuel-powered engines, little tiny nitro engines that you put gas in and you sort of Mm -hmm. started up with a... They literally had a a little stick and you'd whack the prop (laughs) and it would spin up. And yeah, Mm -hmm. we did not do that. The electric motor revolution kind of gave us a real boost in the ability to do interesting things. Mm -hmm. And how has the technology continued to develop over the last 17 years? Things seem a lot different today. Yeah. So as you mentioned, there's this weird space between big drones that are deployed by the military, various militaries. And then there are sort of these toy space area drones, and they're typically multi-copter vehicles. So in between those two spaces... And I think influenced by those two spaces 
is this space of drones in the sort of 450, 550 millimeter size. So, you know, a couple of feet from end to end of the arms of the multi-copter. And this is where the unique space is, I think, because we have been influenced by this small tech. So all the revolutionizing of and miniaturizing of motors and electronics, we've benefited from that but at the same time haven't been subjected to sort of the more rigorous certifications and whatnot of what the DOD drones might encounter. So that has allowed us to really innovate in a very open way. Now, there, there are, I won't, don't want to make the impression that there's no regulations. There are FAA regulations mm-hmm. now, but they are not to the extent that someone like Boeing is making. So, you know, the ability to take all that and apply drones to interesting applications has boomed in the past few years. So you are here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. You're part of the Nimbus Lab. Can you tell me a bit about your path to coming here and uh, your work at Nimbus? Yeah. And and for that matter, what what the Nimbus Lab uh, is. Yeah, so 2007, I finished a master's degree at the BYU Magic Lab, and then I went to work for Lawrence Livermore National Lab as a software engineer working on the National Ignition Facility. Incidentally, yesterday, (laughs) the big fusion announcement. Yeah, so I worked on that system. Mm -hmm. And then I, I really, my passion was in aerospace. I went to do a PhD in aerospace engineering at the University of Michigan, worked in yet another kind of small uh, drone lab. and about that time, unbeknownst to me, in 2010, the Nimbus Lamb was founded by Carrick Detweiler and Sebastian Elbaum here at the university. And so 2014, I graduated with my PhD, 2015, got recruited to and applied for a job here, came here, saw, and just fell in love with the Nimbus Lab. What's unique about Nimbus is that it has worked on drones that interact with the environment So we're not talking about just flight. We're not talking about perfecting flight of drones. We're not talking about flying high and taking pictures, which is useful, but not our goal. Our goal has been to make them interact with the environment in some interesting way. Touch the ground, put in a sensor, drop something down, grab a leaf. Those kinds of actions have been part of our mission to make drones useful to the science community. That has been true for all of Nimbus. Although I would say now we are expanding our portfolio a bit. We've focused until about a year and a half or two years ago on a single vehicle, creating the ability of the drones to interact. Now we're expanding that to multiple vehicles at the same time, launched simultaneously to do sort of a swarm mission. I can imagine that the transition from the propeller style to the multi-prop style of drones has really facilitated this sort of interact with the environment because with a propeller style, they're, they're like sharks. They always have to be moving Gotta forward. keep moving. But with uh, the, the multi-copter, you can hover, you can move up and down and backwards. You can do a lot more dynamic sorts of movements. Yeah, sort of this precision interaction. I can move more precisely. Of course, this also requires um, a fair amount of innovation because, again, sensors are small, motors are small, and with that comes a lot of noise. So there's this, it do, it has enabled that, and yet there's still a, a lot of room to improve their ability to precisely move. And yes, now this allows me to 
get close to the tree to grab the leaf, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, yeah. And we'll come back and talk about some of the specific research projects that you are working on, which in my mind, I'm summarizing as anything I can do, you can do better with a drone. Um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll come back and uh, talk about uh, some of those specific applications and projects in your research. What, what are some things that you think listeners might find surprising or interesting about drones that differ from perhaps the common understanding of what drones are or are capable of? Yeah, so I think a lot of people think about drones in the toy space or the big dropping something, surveilling something for military purposes, or they think of them as, I think often there's a belief or a connotation that they are invading people's privacy because Mm -hmm. they're journalism style, flying high taking pictures. Certainly in the legal side of things, where I mostly come from, lots of privacy discussions, lots of discussion about if I see a drone over my property, can I shoot it with a shotgun? Right. I mean, so many discussions about (laughs) that. The people that we want to deploy these, get them in the hands of, are people who want the tech. They want the surveillance of their crops. They want the monitoring of key parameters, or they want the ability to put a ground sensor in the ground uh, autonomously for, uh, to a region that is difficult to de- get to. Um, so they are embracing, want to do this. We're not thinking about this from a, a sort of privacy perspective here. What are the challenges in this sort of work? You mentioned the noise, which I assume is many people have heard these multi-copter drones, they're, they're loud. They have this loud buzzing sound. So is, is that one of them? I can imagine anything mobile technology. I think uh, battery power is going to be an issue. Communications, uh, weight. What are the things that keep you up at night trying to think of ways to overcome or deal with? Yeah, there. so all of those things for sure, and depending on the context even more, Let's start with the most recent thing we're worried about, which is communication. So, you know, a single agent or a single UAS to a ground station, that's pretty easy communication-wise. What's more difficult is when I put a lot of them up in the air. Now I have... What's a lot? Uh, so even just 10, uh, I guess that feels like a lot to me. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> some people don't think of that as a lot. That's a lot to me. But yeah, so the uh, communication between the agents, between the different vehicles is, is difficult mm-hmm. to do both reliably and at a rate that allows us to do interesting autonomy, interesting control. Another key challenge is uh, precision. So easy to get precision if you have a lot of infrastructure. For example, you can have a GPS with an additional RTK GPS, as it's called, which gives you sort of this centimeter accuracy. But it requires extra infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But just a regular GPS that I put on these things, we're talking you know, a meter, maybe two meters of accuracy. That's not very good if you're trying to sort of reach out and grab something or mm-hmm. you're trying to place something precisely. There's a a lot of tech that goes into how can I control, estimate, move, communicate in a way that honors this or, or is takes into account those limitations of small sensors and, and motors and whatnot that aren't that great. Another key challenge I think people don't often think about is that with these types of systems, the mean time to failure on the parts is much lower. That is to say, they fail more often, more frequently. 
And so what that means is that reliability isn't the same as you get with like an aircraft. The aviation industry, as you know, has a, an amazing safety record. That has not translated yet to this drone space. Uh, why is that? Uh, again, we need uh, you know motors that fail less often. We need props that are better, withstand more forces, frames that withstand more forces, computation that's better, higher frequency, higher power. So you're stressing all of the equipment really greatly, pushing the, the bounds of what it can do? Yeah, as well as to pick up on one of the things you mentioned, the battery life is pretty key. Um, people always ask the question, well, how long can it fly? Mm -hmm. And that will be followed up by how much can it carry? But those two things are coupled. Mm -hmm. I, I cannot separate those. So, right, a sort of off-the-shelf drone with uh, a, a large one, let's say, with a big battery can go 45 minutes. You load that up with some interesting equipment that you'd like to use for monitoring or, or sampling or something else, all of a sudden that's 20 minutes. That's mm -hmm. a huge difference. And, and 20 minutes might be unusable or uninteresting to a client where mm -hmm. 40 minutes is. Yeah, it takes 10 minutes to yeah. fly to the place and five, exactly. 10 minutes to fly back. Well, you've got zero minutes left to do something there. Exactly. So I, I can imagine then you're trying to shave weight, which means you're going to be using more delicate equipment, either sensors or weakening the frame of the drone, using lighter weight props or something, all of which is going to fail more exactly. rapidly. Or simply limiting what we can do. I'd like, a client would like to have this sensor on the drone. Sorry, can't do it unless you want to reduce your, you know, flight time to nothing. Where are the brains of the drones? So typically they are centralized on board. So we run, I guess at some point it might be worth talking about sort of the move to require U.S. made components mm -hmm. of drones. But the reason I bring that up now is because it is central to what brain we put on. So we select the brains, the autopilot of this drone to be compliant with these rules and regulations. So, but yeah, sits on the center, you know, runs a little microcontroller, and then we run an open source autopilot called ArduPilot that is fairly popular and fairly robust. Uh, and yeah, sits on there, interfaces with a ground station. So there is sort of a user on the ground sort of seeing what the drone is doing, commanding it to next waypoints, things like that. Mm. So you're really working on a lot of autonomous flight systems then for operating the drones. Autonomous flight systems as well as its payload being autonomous. So we usually try to distinguish those two things. There is sort of a flight stack. Mm -hmm. And it does its thing for the UAV, UAS. And then there is the payload, which may have a different stack. And so we are automating those two things in conjunction, but uh, somewhat separately. And I should have started with this acronyms, acronyms everywhere. Oh, geez, U UAV, yes. UAS, uh, <laughs> drone is just a word, non-acronym. Can you just define those terms yeah. and the differences? Yep. So unmanned air vehicle. UAV was a preferred term for a lot of years, and sort of researchers in this space bristled at the term drone. And then we sort of just recognized that this was going to be the way it was and have mm -hmm. kind of embraced the word drone. On the research side, it's more accurate to say UAS, which is Unmanned Aircraft System or Unmanned Aerial System. And the reason is because that includes the ground station. We're not just talking about the thing flying. We're also talking about the ground station and whatever else is interacting with this. And that gives you a more complete picture of what we're talking about. 
You mentioned, I don't know if this is the term used in this setting, but a set by America requirements for drone equipment. This is increasingly common really in every field that I work in and see for a, a range of concerns, perhaps most notably, however, national security when it comes to anything technology related. And drones, I expect it's especially the case because so many of the drone applications either are directly or ultimately might have some military application. Can you say a bit more about both what this requirement is and what it means for your research? Essentially, I don't want to get details wrong and for uh, Obviously, there's a lot of framework here, but um, in the past few years, there became a federal requirement that to use federal dollars to purchase drones, they need to be NDAA compliant or what we call blue. So we affectionately call this blue in, in our world. The, um, the, the color. Yeah. So blue, blue components, which essentially means U.S. made. It's not strictly U.S. made. It's oftentimes U.S. or our allies made. And there are, you know, fine-toothed regulations there that indicate sort of which parts. But basically, the gist is, if you're going to use federal dollars, you've got to buy U.S.-made or ally-made drones. The impact of this has been far-reaching and difficult. Used to be you could buy an off-the-shelf DJI frame or drone and customize it and then go deploy it. it DJI. Uh, DJI. The, the large The large drone, drone manufacturer. manufacturer in China, yeah, and, and arguably make the best hardware in the drone industry. Mm -hmm. So can't buy those anymore, can't use those anymore. But at the same time, U.S. market has not sort of matched in many ways, especially the price point of what China DJI has been able to offer. Mm -hmm. So what this means is what we could do on a shoestring budget before now requires tens of thousands of dollars more to purchase a drone. But perhaps more significantly for me, you know, we can often write these numbers, these budgets into our grants. Mm. More significantly is we'd like to go show DOD and other stakeholders what we can do. And to do that, you go demonstrate this at various tech demonstrations that the DOD puts on. Well, you can't go do that unless you're compliant with these blue regulations. Mm -hmm. And what this means is sort of trying to play the game of mix and match to find the components that you can put on your vehicle so that it will pass the, mm -hmm. the blue right. test at these demonstrations. And that is unclear at best. So it's not straightforward to find parts that are blue. Sometimes it is. Sometimes they exist clearly in a database and you can just see the list. Other times companies say that they're blue and they're actually, turns out they're not. Does this only apply to hardware or the software as well? Yeah, so right now our biggest concern has been hardware. We run ArduPilot, which is open source and therefore allowed. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think software has been the primary concern. It has been uh, hardware. And, and I, should, I should clarify that to say that there's an interaction component there. Mm -hmm. But the primary concern so far has been sort of picking the hardware pieces. Continuing on the national security side of things, there obviously have been a lot of reports and discussion about drones used in Russia with American parts that are found in them. And that has nothing to do with your research, um, uh, certainly. But uh, I'm just curious how these concerns, these discussions, these reports affect your thinking about the field or your research. In some ways, we're facing moments that science has faced for generations 
to enable key technologies that can be used for nefarious purposes. Obviously, American citizens, so I, you know, on Team USA, as it were, I think we in the lab have tried to focus on science and agricultural applications. Um, we have been asked to do things that have national security implications, but those have largely been in the realm of collecting information, which I think is valuable for its own sake. Um, so I haven't been involved and you're sort of unclear of what my colleagues would think about doing more, what you're talking about, sort of defense in the sort of Ukraine space type. Mm. So uh, we think about this in terms of science primarily, and that's been how we have kind of addressed this concern. So let's uh, pivot to talk about some of your current research. I uh, jokingly said when I've read about it, I think of it as anything I can do, drones can do better, or perhaps anything I can do, you can do better with drones to involve both a human operator and the drone. So you have a few projects that I know that you're working on. I expect there are, there's other research, but let's start with your work, because it's not exploration, but uh, work drones in the Arctic and uh, soil monitoring. Yeah, we're pretty excited about these. These are coming online right now. So as I mentioned, we've been expanding to multiple agents. And there's a couple of ways to think about this. You could think about a swarm where sort of all of the vehicles are doing the same thing, but they're working collectively. You could also think about it as different types of vehicles, each of which has a task, and you'd like to sort of send the team out to do its task, but in sort of a parallelized fashion. That's mostly what the Arctic project is about. On the robotic side, on the science side, the underlying science is that due to climate change, Beavers have been migrating to the northwestern part of Alaska. They're, for lack of a better term, invading that area and melting the permafrost because they build these dams that change the water flow. That on its own. It has nothing to do with your work Nothing to do with my work. It's amazing. And I, yes. I, I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but beavers are an invasive species and they did the same thing in Patagonia. Yes. Um, and they change the ecology. They change the ecosystems in amazing ways. And just hearing you say... Beavers are invading Alaska and they're melting the permafrost. <laughs> that, that sounds really weird, but yeah. how, how do we know this? Well, we need to kind of monitor it. And that brings yeah. us to the, the drones. Yeah, so we have a science partner in Alaska who studies this. Well, the, the trouble is, is that it's not a particularly accessible area, much like Patagonia might be. Mm. And interestingly, there's a lot of uncertainty about what goes on particularly in northern climates for beavers. Obviously, water freezes, and so the question becomes, well, what's happening to the beavers? Are they just kind of hanging out in this house underneath this dam they've built? Well, the answer is it's not totally clear. And so part of this project is to deploy a heterogeneous team of swarms. By heterogeneous, I mean agents, robots with different capabilities. Mm -hmm. In this particular case, there will be a flying drone, so a UAV. There will also be a water surface boat drone, if you will. And then there will be underwater sensors or, or other robots that go underneath and sort mm -hmm. of try to figure out what's going on beneath. So we are deploying that as a team to go and monitor, learn about, surveil beavers as they move at different times of the year. 
So this is really emphasizing the importance of that S in the UAS. It, it's a system. So yes. I, I'm, I'm just making things up at this point. But I can imagine if you have land-based sensors, vehicles, what's not, they might be powered by uh, solar power so they can recharge, they can collect data, but they can't communicate that data. So the drone could fly in and it could upload all the data. It might have some sensing capabilities as well, but that is a literal vehicle for establishing communications that might otherwise be impossible. Yeah, I could sort of do this uh, scenario where you collect the information from the vehicles on the surface of the water or something, sort of rise up, gain altitude to a good point of communication, communicate mm -hmm. it to something else, and then go along. In this particular instance, so one theme, one way that we're expanding in the lab is we've been thinking a lot about deploying agents, robots, so in this particular one, uh, the air vehicle is going to carry the boat, mm -hmm. the surface vehicle, and the surface vehicle will carry the underwater robot. And so sort of together, we're launching this out. Mm -hmm. So in this particular case, we're thinking more about long-range deployment. Mm -hmm. I can't get over this ridge and down into the valley without disturbing the ecosystem. So let me sort of launch this flying vehicle to then deploy the sequence of robots. And then collectively, the question is, well, okay, then what? So how are we going to move the vehicles around? In this particular instance, the beavers sort of create, they build these dams and they create these sort of larger ponds that are now where they were not connected are now kind of connected. Mm -hmm. So the surface water vehicle is going to then kind of scoot around through these ponds, deploying underwater robots, underwater sensors, and then the UAV, the flying vehicle will sort of then collect information from the boat and then, as you said, sort of communicate this more broadly. So not to uh, start a interagency sort of fight or anything, but uh, <laughs> do you have any conversations with folks at NASA or JPL over who has the harder job running a rover on Mars versus running drones in Alaska? Oh, man. All the respect to NASA. They are amazing. Yeah, I, I have not had the good fortune of working with NASA very much. Interestingly, I am in that their community, sort of the aerospace community is one of my main communities, but I work with robotics community as well and end up sort of not talking that much to NASA, which I would like to. So, right. Yeah, it's amazing. Please as, talk to us. <laughs> as you're describing what the work in the Arctic, this sounds like Mars stuff yeah. in terms of complexity and de yeah. deploying uh, vehicles to autonomously get from the air to the surface and uh, maintain communications. Unsurprisingly, you also do a lot of ag-focused work. Yeah. I know you're working a bit on soil monitoring right now, and Nimbus yeah. has done lots of other work. Can you tell us a bit about this work? Yeah, and, and I suppose this is at least one good segue for me to say, you know, we leverage a lot of collaborators who are experts in different spaces. So, And we could not do what we do without them. So this particular instance, I bring that up because uh, Trenton Franz in the IANR, Natural Resources, School of Natural Resources, works with us to develop drones to do soil water monitoring. That kind of expanded into an idea to assess carbon being stored in the soil. So, so the way this works, carbon sequestration, is companies who want to be carbon net positive or you know, deploy, release carbon into the atmosphere are willing to pay others who would store it to sort of offset that emissions. So one solution to that is to have farmers or other landowners store in the top layers of soil carbon, carbon dioxide, carbon in any form. Mm -hmm. So basically leave it there, not till it. The trouble is you 
got to figure out how much of the carbon's there, which is coupled somewhat to water. And so the idea here was if you want to verify, get ground truth for what's actually in the land, you've got to go sample it. Well, if someone has a thousand, thousands of acres of land, this becomes a pretty tedious job. And, and right now, the, the best way to do this is to go out manually and stick sensors, probes mm -hmm. down in the ground. Well, we have a drone. We haven't discussed this particular drone yet, but we have a drone that has a, an augering digging mechanism in it. It drills a hole into the ground and puts a sensor down in there or can extract some soil. So the idea here was, okay, well, we will build a team that will go extract soil samples from the ground, detect the water in the ground in a team fashion. When you say team, do you mean a team of drones? Team of drones in this particular case, yeah. So this is all a team of flying vehicles. Each of them has slightly different capabilities, but they are all flying vehicles. And they would go, yeah, collect information about soil water content and carbon content in the soil, and then report this information back. Sort of an underlying piece of this that's less related to the robots is, well, where should you take the samples? And, uh, you know, the most obvious way is you just kind of grid the space and go sample in the grids. But uh, we've come up with a way that we think we can do it a little bit better, a little bit smarter, mm -hmm. and sort of go and send the drones out to smart strategic locations mm -hmm. to sample in a more intelligent, more efficient way and get better data. Presumably, part of that calculation is not just better data, but also at lower cost, fewer drones for fewer flights or fewer sensors. Yeah, it doesn't require hours on end to go. So I think we have a number in, in the some of the information that we've written, and I don't remember what it was, but it's it's reducing going and doing the manual sampling, which takes hours per acre, mm -hmm. to being able to do dozens and dozens of acres in an hour. That's the kind of savings that we're thinking about. So th th there's a labor cost to that, but it's more than just a labor savings cost. It's a time savings cost as well. Get me the data sort of in around the same time from all of my field, right? I don't want a sample here, and then five days later, give me the sample on the other side of my field. Mm. Get me the samples in all of them within a couple hours. Right, it needs to be emphasized, this is research. So you're working on this one application, but I expect in your mind, sure, this is one application, one soil monitoring application, but this is, enabling a platform for future applications, future tools, future development. I, I'm just thinking in the back of my mind, uh, I'm behind on my Netflix, or I guess it's Paramount. We only just started watching season two of Picard. And uh, in the first episode, they're out in the vineyard and they have, it's uh, harvest time, they're harvesting all the grapes, but they've got drones that are using their transporters to transport the grapes off the vine into uh, collection bins. And that's kind of what you're talking about. You, we don't of the tran transporters yet, but it's a, a fleet of drones going out into the yeah. field to do a time-intensive task at scale that, yeah, we could send 50 people out into 40 acres to take a bunch of soil readings, or we can send a fleet of drones to do that. Yeah, and uh, sort of building on this, so, so there's the development of the platform as a sort of long-term investment, a testbed, if you will, for deploying these in the future. But there's another interesting piece that I, I hope will resonate with people. So, you know, you could build algorithms, autonomy for these. 
and you could sort of design them and build them and then test them and deploy them. That's kind of a, a traditional cycle. But oftentimes what ends up being missed are the nuances of the uncertainty of the environment when you deploy them. One thing that Nimbus does really, really well is leverage a lot of drone experience between the co-directors of my lab. I mean, we've got decades of experience deploying these robotics. But we leverage those field deployable conditions and environment and the performance of the vehicles in those environments and use that information to sort of rebuild or redesign algorithms, foundational algorithms to enable the autonomy. So we're not just talking about the robot itself. We're talking about all the algorithm development, autonomy development that goes into making them more robust. And that's really, I think, the heart of Nimbus is this ability to leverage deployment to inform foundational research. Mm -hmm. And that discussion of algorithms takes us to another of your areas of research, um, your NSF Career Award, Resource Aware Cyber-Physical Vehicle Autonomy, which when I read the description of this project, I'm just going to say for listeners, this is math. <laughs> this is yeah. algorithms. This is system control sort of stuff. Um, I, I think most people, again, when you think about drones, most people like, expect to have a pretty, you have an operator flying stuff around, or it's a pretty straightforward, you go from point A to point B, and maybe there are some navigation algorithms or something. But the algorithm work that you're doing for the autonomous vehicles it's much more complicated than that, especially when we get into this resource awareness, making dynamic decisions. Yeah. Can you uh, tell me a bit about uh, what this work is? Yeah, the, the way I like to explain this is if you imagine driving a car on I-80 in western Nebraska, I don't know if you've ever done that. It's a very long, straight freeway, and there's not a lot of interesting things happened. It would be easy to get distracted because as long as you can hold the wheel straight, there's not much going on versus if you've ever gone through a very steep canyon with a lot of twists and turns, potential deer coming out every moment. This is a different dynamic experience for you as the driver. You are keenly aware, you have refocused your resources to make sure that you are safe and don't hit anything. So robots don't have the ability to do this they can't reallocate resources based on what's happening in the environment or what's happening in the car or whatever. We design them as if they were always going down the canyon at 100 miles an hour, right? That, we design them for worst case scenario, right? And this makes sense, especially in aviation, right? I want to make the most robust system I have. So let me build the system as if there's always something on the horizon that I've got to be aware of. But the reality is, is that a lot of the time, the robot is quote unquote driving down the freeway, mm -hmm. uh, a straight freeway in Western Nebraska, so to speak. And just to put a fine point on it, coming back to earlier in our discussion, drones are resource constrained. Resource so constrained heavily. When, when you're operating in that worst case scenario sort of mode, your sensors are constantly monitoring, your CPU, your computer is constantly evaluating, running, draining your battery. Exactly. And so what I'd like to rather do is when I'm driving down the freeway, it's straight and there's nothing interesting going on. I'd rather take those resources and apply them to something else. 
In this particular case, what I'm thinking most about are things like monitoring surveillance activities that require machine learning. Machine learning has come or is coming. We're going to use them in our vehicles, but they are complex and they require a lot of computation to execute them. Well, I may not have the computation to spare. What my career award tries to help me do is build the foundation to build autonomy that will allow me to take those resources when I don't need them and reallocate them towards things that I are more useful and then take them back when something dynamically is interesting and I have to use those resources for precision control or something like that. So it's kind of a limbic system for the drones or yeah, the know when to exactly. uh, uh, inject a shot of adrenaline yep. when you need it, but let the drones mind wander That's uh, right. the rest of the time. That's right. What's next in your work or the work of the lab? So I think the biggest thing is moving to multi-agents. This has been a real challenge. We've been working with an agency to develop swarms that are capable of target tracking or resupplying, moving things to another location, things like that. Um, and most people, when they deploy a swarm, deploy them inside with a motion capture system and with using Wi-Fi communications, or alternatively, they are fully centralized. So for example, the drone shows that you see that kind of look like fireworks, mm -hmm. those are often centralized. They're telling you know all the drones where to go at each precise moment. They're not sort of collectively necessarily working together, sharing information and making a collective decision. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're trying to enable. Well, how do you make this happen outside? That has been the challenge. We've been working on it a, the past year and a half and have learned a ton. So what is next? The thing that is next is to try to build a swarm by thinking of it as sort of a single organism. Instead of designing each vehicle and then sending it to different locations point to point, which is, as we discussed earlier, is kind of what we do right now. What I'd like to do is think about them as an organism that I could task to go do a thing or move in a particular way according to some sort of flow mathematics or something like that. That's really hard to do right now. Some of the challenges that we face are, as we discussed, communication. Just don't have good enough radios yet at the price and weight that lets mm. me put these on there and they still have reliable communications. There's also this sort of mean time to failure of the components. So this is the way I like to frame this for people. So imagine you have a swarm where each robot has about a 90% success rate. So it will succeed at its mission 90% of the time. As soon as I deploy eight of them, the odds of all eight of them accomplishing their mission with a, each one having 90% success rate drops to 43%. Mm -hmm. That's bad. Yep. So if, if each robot, say, had 75% reliability or, or success in its mission, this drops to like 10%. It's ridiculous. To get to the place where you could reliably deploy a swarm with, say, I don't know, 80-90% success rate for the whole collective, you've got to have like 97 to 99% success rate of each robot. That means more precision GPS. It means better radios. It means better equipment. And that's all there if you want to pay 100 grand per vehicle, mm -hmm. but you don't. Right. 
<laughs> especially when they're only this big, when they're, uh, you know, a foot wide. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to pay that. Right? Especially when you're talking about uh, uh, swarms of them yeah. as well, because every extra dollar is times 10. Yeah, and at least part of this, uh, part of the reason to want a swarm is the sort of redundancy that comes with deploying a lot of them. So, you know, at 100,000 bucks a pop, this becomes unreasonable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we need to get to... reliability with these vehicles in deployment. That is the big challenge that Nimbus is going to be trying to tackle over the next few years. Algorithms, autonomy, and robots that are more reliable that can be deployed as a swarm. Is the sole focus reliability of the individual robots, the individual drones, or is it system reliability such that you're going to expect we want to target 90% system reliability, which means we're going to assume that two or three drones are going to fail over the course of the operation, the execution, and the system needs to be able to adapt to that and continue functioning. Yes, that's exactly right. So right now we're thinking about a siloed robot, and that's how we build and design them. I want to think about sort of cutting across the silos. How could I build a communication paradigm that would work across the swarm? And yes, then I can think about sort of the system as a collective reaching this 90% or targeting this reliability that I want. But I need to think about this sort of across the silos, across the agents, and build from the ground up each of the different layers, if you sort of stratified this, each of the robots. How would I think about this across communication as a whole, across autonomy as a collective, that kind of thing? So we're talking about moving from thinking about a robot to thinking about and designing the collection of robots. Well, we are rapidly... uh exhausting our batteries. So we're going to need to uh, start returning to base pretty soon. Any uh, last thoughts that you want to leave us with? Yeah, I want to just reiterate, drones have tremendous capacity to help us in agriculture, to help us in the military, to help us in virtually every way, delivery of package. All of these things are potentially in our future. It's going to require the exact type of work that we're working on. And we hope that people will start to rely on, trust, and view these as helpful things in their world rather than things that are invasive. And we're doing our best through our outreach mechanisms to try to showcase the ability to use these things for good. Well, Justin Bradley, thank you for taking the time with us. And I look forward to continuing to watch the world that you are helping to build. It's an exciting one. And I I said it before, and I'll end with it now. Anything that I can do, it sounds like drones can do better in partnership with me, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleege is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC. NGTC.